Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Patrick Lee, co-founder of Hobo Labs, which is a mobile gaming company. But he's probably best known for being one of the founders of what is probably the most popular movie review website in the world, and that's called Rotten Tomatoes. I'm sure you've heard of it. Patrick shares with us his story of how it took him nearly 10 years to graduate from college because he was too busy building companies on the side. He's a very seasoned serial entrepreneur who's on his sixth startup now, and he's been through multiple market bubbles, crashes, and company exits. And he shares with us some valuable advice to startup founders at the end of the episode. Let's jump right in. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us on the J. Kim Show. Really appreciate your time. For our audience that perhaps has not heard of who you are or, or haven't, hasn't heard of what you've done, maybe you could give us a little quick intro and uh, introduce yourself to the audience here in Asia. Sure. My name is Patrick Lee. Born in the States, born in LA, grew up in Maryland, went to school out in UC Berkeley. Uh, did a whole number of uh, startups, uh, six at the moment. The most well-known was a movie review site called Rotten Tomatoes, where I was a co-founder and the former CEO. Mm. We sold it to IGN Entertainment back in 2004. I went to China, did something there that was similar to like a Yelp. Went to Hong Kong, worked on a startup there called Alive Not Dead, working with uh, a little bit like a MySpace, working with different celebrities and artists across Asia to connect to their fans. And now in the Bay Area, working on a new startup called Hobo Labs, making mobile games. Wow. Okay. I, I actually didn't know about a lot of that, that I probably should have known that. But uh, I've heard of the brand, but I didn't know that you were behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So you, you six, wow, six, six startups. So you're pretty, pretty born and bred sort of, this is what you feel like you're meant to do. Now, was Rotten Tomatoes your very first startup? Uh, it was actually our third it was your third. Okay, so maybe you can backtrack a little bit and tell us about how you decided that you wanted to become a startup founder slash entrepreneur and uh, what led you to that point in your life. I had some different friends I knew from the first two years of college at Berkeley and kind of, I guess we were kind of getting bored of school a little bit and we wanted to try doing some different things. <laughs> and at the time... You know, one of our friends was really good at using the Usenet and some of these other things to find deals on computer hardware. So we decided to start up our own, like, computer, like, retail business selling, you know, computer systems and components. So we made a website. We, like, kind of spread by word of mouth. And people would place orders with us for either parts or systems pay us in advance, we'd go drive down, put the orders in, drive down to South Bay and buy the parts. And then we would come back and build the systems and sell it to them. Wow. So this is web 1.0. Like, re- This is probably what? 90- 90... 
three, I think. Wow. Okay. All right. So you were like on the forefront. Like I, I don't think I even knew what the internet was back then. I think my first exposure was in '97 ish. But um, so this was like e-commerce. yeah i mean this is super early i think like ebay and stuff is they were like relatively new at that point i I believe like yahoo had just started and yeah back then i mean you know we probably should have jumped really into the internet at that point but we were much more just like we wanted to do some sort of business it seemed like the easiest one to kind of get into and we went and got our own apartment three of us shared the apartment and we put the inventory there. You know, sometimes we'd buy extra inventory, leave it, you know, in um, a locker in our apartment. Um, and we found that that was actually difficult because things like uh, CPUs and memory would drop in value very quickly during that time. And so, you know, even holding onto something for like a week or two, we would be losing money. Um, but it was a good experience in terms of like just learning to kind of manage inventory, reaching customers fulfilling orders, et cetera. Right. And so how did the, so how did that one end up in the end? We ended up stopping it, but then later on one of the, the four, I did it with four, three other guys. So four of us total. One of the other guys, Jimmy, he ended up restarting it, brought me back on. We ended up getting a deal with Asus computers. They like make motherboards and a bunch of other stuff mm-hmm. and to help doing maintenance for them on their website uh, for like, I think it was like 7,000 a month contract um, because Jimmy and I had actually worked there over the summer where we were like part of their tech support team. And so they kind of outsourced it to us. We relaunched it, but then a couple months in, I ended up leaving uh, because he had brought in all these other partners. Um, They actually got a real, actual real storefront. And then I left Uh to go and do my second company, which was doing like web design. So you were in school, and then when you started doing the startup stuff, and you were like, okay, this is actually, you know, there's something to it here, even though the first might not have worked out the way you planned. Was there any sort of pushback from your family about, you know, when you left to go? I mean, you basically, you stopped studying, right? And you just started working full-time doing your startup? Well, I was kind of on and off on uh, school during while I was doing the startups. So I basically did two years worth of school, then convinced the other three guys to leave school. In the end, I think only two of us ended up graduating. And it took me basically 10 years to finish the last two years worth of school because I would take classes on and off or take a year or two off if I got busy, go back, take summer classes. And that was over the course of three different startups. So <laughs> the first one selling computer systems components, the second one doing web design, and the third one being Rotten Tomatoes. So after we sold Rotten Tomatoes, I went back for a semester, finished up, and then I went to Asia. Was there actually a reason, a, a compelling factor that, that made you keep going back? And, and I mean, at some point you must have been like, in order to be successful, I don't need a college degree. I mean, you must have realized that at some point, but something kept pulling you back to just get the degree, right? Yeah, well, when I left school the first time, my mom was like, no, just finish your school first, then do startups. And, you know, actually, it makes a lot of sense looking back. But I was like, no, I really want to do this. And I think this is the first startup we did, we put in our own savings. The second one, when I did the web design company, I had one other co-founder. 
Stephen, who also ended up co-founding Rotten Tomatoes with me. Mm. And in that, for that one, my mom and his uncle ended up loaning us money. So even though she really wanted me to finish school, when I was like, no, I really want to do this, she ended up loaning me money. Oh, wow. Okay. And as far as finishing, um, yeah, I mean, when we were doing Rotten Tomatoes, or even when we were doing the, the web design firm, we, you know, I knew, like, I don't have to go and finish um, in order to, to work. Like, we already had companies that were clearly making money. And because I knew when we sold Rotten Tomatoes, I wanted to move to Asia, I was like, well, I'm really close. And if I leave, I don't know if I'm ever going to come back to the Bay Area. So I might as well just take a semester, finish up first, and then go. And just to, like, you know, finish what I started. It wasn't so much that I felt like I needed it to get a job. Right. And I've actually, like, I studied cognitive science. I've never used any of it for any of the six <laughs> startups I've done. Interesting. So, so if, if, if someone to, to ask you or if you were had to give a talk or something like that about the value of a college education, what would you say? Um, I would say two things. One, all six startups I did were with friends from Berkeley. Mm. So every single one were with, like, multiple different friends that I knew from the first two years of school. Uh, most of them were, half of them I knew through this martial arts club that I was really into called, uh, it was a Wushu club. Oh, cool. And, it's, and the other half were on the same floor as me freshman year. So basically people I was really close to. Mm. So I, I tell a lot of people, like, when they're like, where do I find a co-founder? I'm like, the single best place, in my opinion, to find a co-founder is while you're still in college. So I think that's a huge one. And then the second is, if you actually study something that may be relevant to eventually doing a startup, i.e. like computer science or, you know, like artificial intelligence or possibly some statistics or probability or math or something. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Or, or like medical stuff, you know, biology, if you end up going biotech or something like that. Yeah. I mean, some of those, I guess, are, they actually have technical knowledge that you might need. I mean, I, <laughs> I was a business major and that was pretty much useless. I mean, I, I don't remember anything and nor did I apply anything. It was all on the job training whenever I graduated or whatever, but no, that's mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Okay. And so let's go now to the startup uh, that you're probably most famous for, or people will probably know you most for is uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And so that again was with a couple of your classmates or dorm mates. Mm -hmm. How did that idea come about? So yeah, I guess stepping back a little bit, our second is company was a web design firm called uh, Design Reactor. Right. I did that with Steven, who I knew through Wushu. Mm -hmm. And we also had one other guy. I mean, we had a whole team of people, but one of our creative directors was this person, Sen Duong, who was a huge movie buff. Our design firm, we ended up doing a lot of work for the entertainment industry. Uh, Disney Channel, Warner Brothers, ABC, MTV, VH1, Artisan Entertainment. We originally started doing a lot of different kinds of websites, even like dentist website or tech companies, et cetera. Mm. And we found that they were really boring. We, didn't, we just didn't care about doing those. <laughs> and we just gravitated. We got an opening into Disney. We ended up just focusing on all entertainment. We didn't take anything else if it, if it wasn't entertainment. Or if it came through, we'd pass it to other design firms um, because we found like that was something we were really interested in. So anyways, uh, while we were running this design firm, Sen came up with the idea for Rotten Tomatoes on the side. Basically, his, the idea for it was, you know, back in the day, I think they still do it now, but back in the day, you would get a newspaper and you'd see these full-page ads for uh, movies. Mm -hmm. they would look, they'd basically be a movie poster with a bunch of quotes all over it. Right. And it didn't matter if the movie was actually good or not. The quotes would always be positive. <laughs> and so if the movie was really good, 
the quotes would be from famous film critics like Roger Ebert. Right. If the movie was bad, it would be like quotes from like random radio station DJs in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes even fake. Yeah. And so his idea was like, well, what if I do the same thing, but include all the quotes, like good and bad. And so he just started doing this on the side in his spare time. You know, back then, a lot of reviews weren't even on the web. So he would go to the library and he would actually go look up the quotes in magazines and newspapers and then, you know, enter the quotes in without any link to anything because they didn't go anywhere. Oh, wow. They weren't on the web. Wow. And yeah, he launched it and almost immediately we were hosting for him. You know, it started getting noticed like, you know, cool site of the day, week, month, etc. You know, link from Netscape links from Yahoo. And yeah, it, it was, it started kind of picking traffic almost immediately. Um, all organic, you know, he didn't buy any ads or anything like that. And at first Steven and I were a little bit against it because it was affecting his work because, you know, he'd be busy like every night, especially, you know, if the movies come out on Friday, he'd be super busy Wednesday, Thursday, uh, sometimes pulling all nighters. And so then he'd be like <laughs> coming into work late or getting sick or or sometimes not showing up and so we were like hey this is like you know we have all these projects that we have deadlines for this is not cool yeah but you know over the course of like the next year we kind of came around we're like you know what actually this is interesting you know maybe we should run it as a business so this was what year was this This was late 90s so yeah he started in 98 uh the site and within a year or so we were like you know the traffic kept growing um there was uh an article for this magazine called Yahoo Internet Life, mm -hmm. where Roger Ebert wrote an article picking out his favorite movie sites. And he picked out like, I don't know, 20 or so sites, and Rotten Tomatoes was one of them. Nice. He also had a day where, pretty soon after the launch, where we noticed a big spike in traffic. It was a day that A Bug's Life came out. And when we kind of looked into the IP addresses, we realized it was actually coming from Pixar. Oh. And from what we could tell, someone at Pixar probably found our page sent it to everyone else at Pixar, and they were just refreshing like crazy to see as we added more reviews on. And so there's a couple things like that where we're like, hey, you know, people in the film industry are actually using this site. Maybe we should run this as a business. So January 2000, uh, I went out, raised money. We basically brought Sen in, made him like a co-founder of the design firm, and we kind of became co-founders of Rotten Tomatoes. So we kind of, the three of us became the co-founders of both. Then we actually found another group to take over our design firm. So we transitioned everything over to that group so we could focus on Rotten Tomatoes. I went out, raised a million US for it, and we decided to run it you know, as our full-time thing. That's awesome. And we actually transitioned something like 20-something people from our design firm over to Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> but then you know, two months after we raised, in March 2000, the market crashed mm. like big time. And we very quickly had to like cut staff down to seven um, and bootstrap like crazy. Yeah, so so you were doing all genres of movies or was it initially like a certain genre and then you just decided, oh, we have to do everything? Oh, well, so the beauty of movies is pretty much if you focus on just the wide release movies, mm. it's only like, you know, usually like three or four movies a week. Right. So it was very easy to keep up with that. Gotcha. You know, and over time we added like the limited release movies we added like we went started going backwards into like the DVDs and old older stuff. We had actually started licensing uh, data from other sources. We started creating like parsers to go out and grab reviews from all the different sites that were popping up with uh, movie reviews to make things a little bit more automated. So, but initially we were just focused on 
what movies are coming out each week, what wide release movies are coming out each week. And when it's only like three to five movies a week, it's, it's very manageable. It was very manageable. And it, doesn't, it didn't even require you to have to watch the movie. You just literally have to get the reviews, right? Right, right. right. So we didn't write our own reviews. We just aggregated the reviews, and then we would write like a very short synopsis of the overall sentiment from all those reviews. Right. And what exactly does Rotten Tomatoes stand for? So the idea was basically, you know, back in the day when, a, you know, if you had like a theater show or, or like a, something like that, if the movie, would, if it was performance was very bad, people would throw rotten fruits and vegetables <laughs> at the actors. And so Sen decided to try Rotten Tomatoes and he got it. So nice. we stuck with it. So that's very interesting. So by the time that you had, it was, you know, you were out there and you decided to raise some money, that must have been like, like peak uh bubble like i mean was it what was your experience fundraising i mean was it was it either they were just writing checks like okay that's a good idea let's do it or was it i mean this was the first time you had raised institutional money so we raised half a million from a very small vc from based in taiwan Mm. and everything else was angel okay they were all contacts that we made from our design firm because we were working with folks who who were doing startups and we were helping them with their logo or their websites and then those ones sold and so when we were like hey we want to we want to do our own company like our own startup everyone was very supportive of that and so yeah it wasn't too hard to raise uh the million actually if we had more time and we didn't want to raise more but i'm pretty sure we probably could have raised two it's hard to say though because we're hitting so close to when it when things burst right so you know had we started three to six months earlier and if we wanted to, I'm pretty sure at that moment, we probably could have raised more. And at the time when the market crashed, we were like, oh, crap, we should have raised more. Because, yeah, we had to cut down headcount. We had to sublease some of our space. Not only did we cut to seven people, everyone had to take a 30% pay cut. Two of us went to zero salary, myself and one of our marketing guys. Wow. And we, we kind of compensated people with more equity, depending on how much they took up, you know, of a pay cut they took. Right. And for myself, you know, it was like something like six months, I just slept under the desk in our office because we had a five-year lease. We were like maybe two years in and we couldn't get out. You actually slept in the office. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, we had all these cubes. And so I just took a a set of three cubes, you know, and then we, since we laid off so many people, pretty much everyone could have like three cubes. And so I just, yeah, I took all three of them, just shoved clothes and stuff into the drawers, got a little sleeping bag. And yeah, man, that is, that is, that's a, that's as bootstrapped as it gets. So then you were able to hang in there and actually survive that sort of market crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you found an exit a few years later, right? Right. So pretty much about a year after the crash, you know, we had cut down our head count over the course of that year from 20, about 25 to seven. And at the same time, we slowly kind of increase our revenue, increase our traffic. And so I think about a year in or so, we were like at or near break even. But that was, you know, being very bootstrappy. But then a year and a half after the market crashed, so it crashed in March 2000. In uh, September of 2001 was 9-11. So, and when that happened, uh, you know, it affected ad buying across the board because you know, people didn't want to watch ads after something like that. Right. Um, so a lot of campaigns got pulled or massively reduced. Mm. So for us, it was a very weird 
experience because we basically went through one of the worst crashes ever, I think, or very, you know, one, a really bad one. And we also went through, I think, the worst terrorist attack ever on American soil. Yeah. Like almost like back to back. So it was, I I think for us, it was a bit traumatizing. So we didn't think kind of the way they did pre-2000 or post, you know, 2008 or so, where everything is just like, we want to take over the world. I mean, really for us, we were just like, we just want to survive. Right. You know, and even in terms of exits, we were just thinking like, oh, if we sell, we just want to make sure our investors get their money back. Like, that was our goal. And looking back, we're like, wow, we totally aimed too low. But I think it was also part of the time. It was just because two very extreme things happened right as soon as we raised that it just, I think it really kind of shrunk our thinking in our heads of of what we had. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also, it was a different era, right? I mean, it was it was almost, a, a, <laughs> I don't know how to say this properly, but it, it was almost... The it was it was real in that your investors, their best interests were at the top of your minds. You know, I mean, I feel like post, you know, oh five, oh six, oh seven ish, it's kind of like a, a new regime out there where where fund where you fundraise and a lot of times you kind of if a startup fails and it's like okay, sorry, it didn't work out, sorry investors, on to the next one, right? And so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of changed. I think the landscape's kind of changed. Okay, so after the exit, then you said you wanted to go to Asia. So you finished up, you got, you went back and finished up your last couple credits or whatever. And then why did you want to move to Asia? So for me, I'm I'm an ABC, American-born Chinese. I was mm-hmm. born in LA. I had gone to China a couple times, you know, for a month or so at a time and visited, I think, Hong Kong and Japan for a couple of days, but never really lived there. And I just felt like, hey, you know, it'd be, I didn't ever do the exchange programs or anything like that. And I was just like, yeah, you know, I'm, I want to try seeing what it's like out there. And at the time I was like, we, you know, America's a little bit ahead of China and as far as like the internet and everything else. We just had kind of a success under our belts from Rotten Tomatoes, you know, so we kind of know what's going on. Maybe we can go over there and be kind of ahead of the curve. Right. But then, you know, once I got there, I was like, wow, you know, basically... I didn't have any network there. I didn't understand the culture at all. It's very different from the States. Yep. I wasn't fluent. I was like conversational Mandarin. I couldn't really read or write. Right. Um, and even like Ron Tomatoes, you know, very few people would have heard of it. So yeah. I thought, oh, yeah, we have these advantages. But when I went there, I realized, oh, no, I actually have a ton of disadvantages. So ended up raising some money, worked with a, one of the guys I did my first company with, Jimmy, on this company there, even brought one of my co-founders, Steven, along with me to, to work on the startup. But, you know, very quickly, Steven and I were like, wow, we just don't know what we're doing. And so we kind of let, relied on Jimmy to run the company. Was the idea already in the works from before? Was it a, an idea that you had spawned before that you were like, okay, when we exit Rotten Tomatoes, we're going to work on this right away? Actually, I was interested in doing a dating site there. I, I found <laughs> online dating to be kind of interesting. Um, you know, I had a friend also from Berkeley, who had a company called Hot or Not. Yeah. And he had, a, he had similar traffic to what we had at Ron Tomatoes when we were both running our, our companies at, kind of at that time. Uh, but he was making a lot more revenue than we were. You know, he had a, a small dating component to Hot or Not that you know, maybe 100,000 people were subscribed, paying $5 a month. But that's you know, $6 million a year plus yeah. advertising revenue. So they were doing like you know, probably eight or nine million, maybe 10 million a year. 
and it was essentially two guys. They hired some, like, I think six more people to help run it for them. And they ended up getting like a house in Hawaii and they were essentially didn't have to do anything. And it just ran itself. And we were like, wow, we're running Rotten Tomatoes. And since we were mostly based on advertising revenue, we actually constantly had to keep, you know, building new movie sites and movie pages and actor pages, director pages to get the traffic up, try to sell ads across it. And it was just a lot more work for, you know, a lot less revenue. And so I was like, yeah, you know, China has so many people dating is going to be something that's going to be important. So I kind of actually wanted to go there and do a dating site. But then once I went there, my friend Jimmy, who I knew from Berkeley, was there already. He was working on the startup that was like a little bit like a Yelp doing like merchant reviews. But then they had like a machine that could do like this loyalty program. So they could put the machines, these card readers into all these different stores, have these loyalty cards that could give out to people in the city. And they could go to the stores to swipe, get a discount. The merchants could kind of track the purchases and then be able to offer, you know, coupons and deals to people based on, you know, how they're using, how often they're using a card, et cetera, and their right. purchase habits. And so I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting. So I decided to go there and join them. But then like one big problem that we found out was that merchants would accept the card and give the discounts, but then they wouldn't swipe. And two reasons for that is one, they didn't want to pay us anything. <laughs> and then the second was they were worried that if they swiped it, you know, the government could come in, grab our servers, and realize, you know, how many transactions they are doing. And uh, in China, they like to do everything cash yep. as much as possible because they don't necessarily want to pay the full amount of tax. Right. And so it broke kind of the whole model because that was like the big part of the revenue. Right. And, and so, yeah, we were just like, oh, wow, like that wasn't even something that I would have even thought of because in the States, I mean, maybe that would happen a little bit, but you look at Yelp and, you know, generally people pay or a lot of these other systems because yeah i mean i guess in the states even restaurants may kind of not include every, like tips and stuff but in general i think it's not as bad as you know like in china yeah that's a different ball game in china that's for sure yeah so so at what point i mean what what ended up happening to that uh startup and then you said you were in asia for nine years yeah so i was in china for three years uh it was a city called shaman the part of china yep. closest to taiwan yep when that model wasn't working they kind of pivoted we ended up buying this like local bulletin board system that was very active around that city uh, called XM Fish. I don't know why that you know that name they were using that name, but it was very popular. And then they basically went around kind of monetizing that, selling advertising across it, adding some services to it. And um, I think that was you know keeping the site the company afloat. And I think it's still running it to this day. But then we basically. You know, it was the point where they weren't going to raise more money, they weren't going to sell, and so we basically got the people to, who were running it to, you know, pay off the investors, you know, a portion of what they put in originally, just to let them have some kind of exit. Right. And so it's still running, but it's, uh, you know, it has a lot of competition from all these other uh, big companies in China. So then after Shaman, you came to Hong Kong, or? Yeah. Okay. So I knew... Uh, a friend from the Bay Area, this guy Daniel Wu, who went to school in Oregon, but he was he grew up in the Bay Area, so he'd come back in the summers, and he also did uh, wushu, so we knew each other from the Berkeley Wushu Club. Mm. And he went to Hong Kong to see the handover. His sister there was like a VJ or something, okay. and she ended up getting him like a modeling some modeling work in Taiwan. A director there saw. I guess, some of his modeling work and decided to cast him in a movie. 
<laughs> and then Jackie Chan, I think, saw the movie, and so they decided to sign him up into Jackie Chan's like talent agency or, or whatever. Nice. Then Daniel ended up becoming like I think one of the biggest movie stars in Asia. Yeah. And so when I was still in China, there was one time I was visiting Hong Kong, and him and uh, a good friend of his, Terence Yin, they approached me and they're like, "Hey, let's let's grab dinner." I'm like, "Okay." And when I was there, they basically pitched me on this movie idea because Dan has you know traditionally been an actor, but he wanted to direct a movie where they created a fake boy band called Alive, <laughs> and they basically made a mockumentary where they filmed the boy band for two years. The band actually released songs, made music videos, actually went on tour for a while. Uh, it was with four actors, only one of them, Terrence, who could actually sing. The rest, they, you know, they were all 30-something. Two of them were already married at the time. And I guess the whole idea was they wanted to film it all and kind of as a statement about the indust- entertainment industry where how come you can have like four actors, 30-something actors, three of which didn't really have any talent for music, <laughs> make a boy band. That's and it still be popular. And so I thought it was a cool idea. And so I, I put in the money to make the movie. It was, it was very low budget um, because I think Daniel basically called in a lot of favors. Right. Everyone, all the actors and stuff were working for free. But then after the movie came out, you know, they were like, yeah, maybe, you know, we're making a statement about the entertainment industry, but we should probably do something not to complain about it. And so we said, hey, why don't we make kind of like a MySpace type of thing where it's about a community for artists, not just celebrities, but artists of all types, including folks behind the camera, you know, like producers and directors and writers, et cetera. And not just in film, but within music and illustration, photography, et cetera. And so we kind of joined forces on that. So myself and Steven from Rotten Tomatoes, along with Daniel, Terrence, and the other two, uh, Andrew and Conroy from the boy band alive <laughs> we all kind of started together to make make this uh company and so we steve and i moved to hong kong and we launched it and it ran for about six years before we decided to kind of get out and when we started i think it was in 2007 and it was going pretty well and we're like let's raise some money and in that situation i started a little bit too late and we hit into 2008 we had already verbal commitments, but then after the 2008, we're like, you know what, it's not a good time to raise. And so then Steve and I just kept, kind of kept putting our own money in. But then similar thing happened where because of the crash, we went from nine people, we cut down to like four, very bootstrappy still, managed to kind of keep it going. But over time, we were just having a little bit too much competition from all these different social media companies not just in China, but also the States. So we're competing against right. you know, Tencent and Sina in China. We're also competing against Facebook, Instagram, YouTube in the States. And since you know, the celebrities were one of our big draws, but eventually they had so many fans on these other platforms that more and more of the content would start going to these other platforms. Right. And so it just made it very difficult for us. So we eventually we managed to sell to a company, uh, MIGME, okay. and for stock. And uh, one of our guys is still running it, but it's it's kind of still a like a shell of its former self. Interesting story there with the uh, the uh, mockumentary. I, I didn't know about that. Oh, the the movie is called The Heavenly Kings. Oh, cool! I'll have to look that one up. Heavenly Kings. Okay, so now you've moved back to uh, the Bay Area. I, I think that's what you said, right? And mm-hmm. what are you working on now? And what are you working on now? So I came back about four years ago. 
And I mainly came back because it's like, I didn't expect to be in Asia for nine years. I thought maybe two or three years, maybe at most five years. And, you know, because I was doing those companies um, and I was trying to make it work, I just kept putting more time and more money in. Mm -hmm. And then next thing I knew, it was almost a decade. And I was like, wow, like, I should probably go home to see family. And, and kind of the, the thinking I had there was, while I was in Asia, I would go back and see my mom and brother about twice a year, but only every third time my dad would also go up. And so I was only seeing my dad like every year and a half. And, you know, he was about 70 at the time. And I was like, wow, if I'm only seeing him once every 1.5 years and he's 70, it's like, do the math. Like, yeah. how many more times are you going to see him? Sure. And so I was like, oh, I, yeah, I should probably go home. When I went back, I had a, another friend that I started my first company with, Lyle. He continued doing startups as well. He ended up doing a company, Gamers.com, with his brother, Dennis Fong, um, that crashed. But from there, they spun out. His brother spun out a company called Xfire. Lyle spun out one called Lithium Technologies, which is like an enterprise company. They raised like $150 million um, and, and are, you know, had a couple hundred employees. Like, I think it was like 500 employees. But I was hanging out with Lyle a lot. He was kind of getting, you know, thinking about moving on from Lithium. He approached me. And he was like, you know, maybe we should, let's do an enterprise company or I want to do an enterprise company. And I said, you know, well, you already did an enterprise company and it, and it did really well. Um, you don't really ever need to work again. <laughs> you know, maybe you should just retire. Or if you really want to keep working, I suggested either do something for fun or do something crazy. And for fun, I was saying stuff like make a movie, right. start a band, write a book, right. or, or make a game or something like that. Or do something crazy like SpaceX or Tesla, like really yeah, yeah. out there. And then about two weeks later, we were all at his house, and he had a bunch of us there. And he stood up, he's like, I know, let's make a game. And then he basically pitched us on making a game right there. And I was like, okay, you know, because both him and I were are big gamers. Awesome. You know, have been since like college. And so we raised money for that and started about three years ago. And we launched one like test game, and now we're working on like the real game. It's been about two years. It's a synchronous multiplayer game, meaning you play with other people at the same time. Yep. It's kind of it's like an RPG. Nice. But but simplified, so it's it's like two D. Uh, has a little bit of elements of like a Diablo or one of those kind of games in there. Mm -hmm. But it's actually been pretty hard because as we've been building it, you know, we made the mistake of just constantly increasing the scope, which is really bad. But it just kind of naturally kept happening, and so. We're hoping to try and launch it like middle of this year. Awesome. We'll have to keep an eye out for it. Where where can people find you, uh, follow you, or find you, uh, the game and and what you're doing these days? The company's called Hobo Labs. Hobo Labs. Uh, so if they go to the website, they can find uh, the game or information about the game there mm -hmm. when we release it. Uh, if they want to follow me on social media, they can find me on Instagram or Twitter. My handle is Rotten Doubt. Rotten like Rotten Tomatoes and Doubt like No Doubt because uh, I used to be oh, a big cool. No Doubt fan. So I just kind of merged the two. And plus I thought it was kind of a funny name because both it's like a double negative. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Awesome. Thanks for your time, uh, Patrick. I had, I had a good time uh, catching up. You have a very interesting story. Um, I have a couple last questions, actually. I, I wanted to sure. ask you, as someone that is six plus startups now, you know, serial entrepreneur type, and I just thought of this when you told me the story of telling your friend to do something crazy or, or do something fun and retire. Do you think that you yourself could ever retire? I mean, is there a certain point? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like it's a number 
in your bank account? Is there a, an accomplishment that you want to achieve? Do you want to be remembered as someone other than the Rotten Tomatoes guy? Is there, you know, um, is there something that you want to achieve before you maybe do something crazy or do something fun? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I never did any of these startups for money. I always did something that I thought was interesting at the time. Most of them were entertainment related. Um, or, you know, the first company was actually just to do a startup and the one in China was just to move to Asia, really. As far as achievement, you know, I'm like, Ron Tomatoes is pretty good. If I, Most likely, I'll never do anything bigger than that and I'm okay with that. <laughs> but obviously, yeah, I mean, it would be cool if I had something else that was that I could be known for beyond just Rotten Tomatoes. Um, you know, for a while when we were doing Alive Not Dead, when it's kind of at its peak and we had the movies out and stuff like that, like that was kind of interesting. But for me, I kind of feel like I'll always be sort of floating around tech and entertainment. I don't know for sure if I'll always keep doing startups. What I've realized is as I've been getting older, I naturally have become more conservative mm. because you start valuing your time a lot more as you get older, you know. When you're 20s versus 30s versus 40s, it's like your day is way more valuable as you get older. Right. So startups take a lot of time and as well as money, but at least, but really time. That That's always something that any startup's going to take. And as I get older, I'm like, I don't know if I can keep putting all this time in. I haven't figured out after this company, you know, what exactly I'm going to do next, but I don't know 100% if I will actually do another startup after this. But we'll see. We'll we'll stay tuned then. So last question, Patrick. What being having gone through all the ups and downs, multiple crashes and uh, exits, if you had one piece of advice to give, say someone that wants to do a startup, or maybe someone that is a startup founder that's going through a rough patch or struggling or building a company right now, what 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 would that one piece of advice be? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, one piece of advice. I would say at the end of the day, a lot of luck and timing is also involved in this stuff and it's not always under your control no matter how smart you are, no matter how hard you work. Mm. The one thing that you kind of can control though is, you know, the, and that should always be the highest priority is your own body and your mind, like your health right. and, and your stress and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, running a startup is stressful, like there are a lot of ups and downs and for most people, there's a lot more downs than ups because, mm -hmm. you know, most startups will fail and it can cause lots of stress. It can cause stress in relationships. It can, you know, it can bankrupt you. It can um, cause health problems, all these kind of things. But so, you know, sometimes people overly prioritize a startup and it's important when you do a startup, especially if you raise money to really put all your effort in, but you have to balance that against the cost of, of yeah, your mind and your body. And um, I haven't always done a good job with that, but I'm trying to do, be better about it. Mm. But, you know, you've seen startup founders who have committed suicide, right. um, things like that, and it's just, it's not worth it. So I would say for people to make sure that they, you know, they always say the work-life balance, and it's very hard to maintain that kind of balance when you're doing a startup, when you're a startup founder. But really, it's important to make sure that you're not, causing so much stress to get into depression to you know cause health problems or, or relationship problems because those are actually that's actually still should be your priority above even your startup that's great 
yeah, uh, I would say that was would Great probably advice. be the main advice. And also, also the kind of uh, to on a related note to try to get some kind of support network around you, either friends, family, other founders, etc. Um, because it's really tough to do this on your by yourself. And a lot of times, as a tech founder, startup founder, you'll feel very alone. And yeah, maybe you have your co-founders to kind of commiserate with, but they're going through exactly the same thing as you. So when things are bad, it's bad for all of you. Mm. Um, so sometimes having a network beyond just the people in your company good is good. Um, thanks, thanks for the sound advice and uh, and for the time, Patrick. We're we're looking forward to seeing the game come out uh, in a few months, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really appreciate your time on the show. Uh, I had a good time catching up with you. Thank you, Jay. All right. Take care now. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.